This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the life and thought of Father Reginald Marie Garrigou Lagrange, who's undergoing a bit of a revival these days for, for reasons we can understand. Um, I want to start by talking about the general outline of his life and then uh, talk about some battles and uh, controversies and people that shaped the, his life as a theologian and as a controversialist. He was um, born in 1877 and he died in February of 1964. He was one of the great neo-scholastics, and he's uh, famous for uh, synthesizing or attempting to synthesize uh, the thought of St. John of the Cross and also uh, him reconciling him and his experimental or experiential style of thinking with the uh, more abstract and comprehensive system of Thomas Aquinas. So there's a marriage between uh, St. John of the Cross and St. Thomas Aquinas that takes place in, in the work of Garrigou Lagrange. We may say something about that uh, as we go ahead. But in any case, um, he notably influenced and um, some would say gave decisive shape to the revival of Thomism in some European and American philosophical circles. Uh, he was you know, believe it or not, he wasn't born a Dominican. He, uh, he was a, a university student, and his first field of choice uh, was medicine. He studied medicine at the University of Bordeaux. Uh, he was about 20 then. Uh, but after two years of medicine, he had a religious conversion. He, he uh, Somehow the faith came alive in him. Uh, and it was very much kind of a moving from darkness to light kind of experience. Not that he was living the life of a libertine or anything like that, but uh, he felt the emptiness, uh, comparative emptiness of life without God compared to the fullness of life that he would found with faith. And then that, that basically, I think, set the course of his entire vocation. Uh, he chose to embrace the priesthood and... On May 20th, 1900, he made his first profession as a Dominican, uh, receiving the name Reginald after Blessed Reginald of New Orleans. Now, I want to say something. Now, you all may know this already, but um, bear with me if you do. The style of the Dominican education in those days, and still today in many ways, is basically structured by the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And... One of the things that characterizes the thought of St. Thomas is its articulation in the form of um, questions. And this, as you may know, this has its origin in the medieval universities uh, way, basic way of instruction, which consisted first of all in lexio, reading an authoritative text, and then commenting on the text in the course of the commentary, uh, students would have questions, uh, which the, um, uh, then the professor would entertain the objections and the questions, and then um, 
present those organ findings in an organized fashion. So you have Lexio reading a text, Questio probing questions that arise naturally for the text. Then uh, for academic exercises, you would have the disputatio where uh, contending interpretations of an authoritative text would be allowed to do battle. It was sort of like the jowl. You know, this is the Middle Ages. This is the era of the night. This is also, there's a lot of myth about this, but there were jousting tournaments. And it's really not too uh, far off to see these events basically as a kind of uh, uh, mano a mano, but who's the, who's the strongest, smartest, baddest theologian on the block, you know what I mean. Um, and there were, they had an exercise qu uh, called the Quod Libet, which was even worse. Have you seen Kung Fu movies? You know that you have the hero uh, who's all, whose master has always been insulted, and then there are at least 30 thugs that come at him from all sides, and he dispatches with all of them. I mean, it, it defies gravity or belief, but this is how, this is the form of the movie. Basically, that's what a quad limit is. It's an intellectual-sized form of a kung fu movie. People come at you from all sides, from top to bottom, left, right, up and back. Uh, and and you, you could be, you didn't have any chance to prepare your responses, you see. It's one thing if you've got time to think about a question, but these questions would come at you and they would come at you from all sides. And they were, you know, they were competitive exercises, so they were very much an exercise in versatility and a demonstration of the skill of the master. All right. So anyway, now this wasn't, I mean, this, this was uh, the way they did things in Thomas Aquinas's day. They had a tamer version of this in Garrigou's day, but the style is basically uh, confrontational or combative. It's not combative in a vicious sense, but it's very much an intellectual trial by strength, you see. And that's basically the, the kind of the outline of the disputation that students would undergo one with another. And it was a way of training, a way of honing their intellectual muscle, giving themselves weight and heft and, and direction and power. So Garagu is raised in this environment and he gets, and he's, I think, competitive and combative by nature anyway. There is such a thing as that kind of personality and that we're not too far off to say that uh, Garagu could be like that. But anyway, when you combine that uh, basic uh, controversialist form of training with the evangelical mission of the order of friars preachers. You know, our basic job is to preach for the salvation of souls. And when you consider that sacra doctrina, uh, that the, um, the study of theology is not simply an academic exercise, but it is also a, um, a mode of contemplation, which is pretty closely allied with the act of faith itself, so that along with faith, Sacra Doctrina can introduce you into the uh, analogical and human way of reproducing in the human mind God's own knowledge of himself and his work. That makes sense. Well, in other words, 
if you were ask a, a modern or a contemporary theologian what the work of theology is, the uh, they would describe it, I think, in terms of um, not seizing hold conceptually of the very being of God. They wouldn't be that ambitious. They would instead, I think, in terms of a liberating praxis, what is the best way to talk about God that can be reflected in uh, saving works of justice. You see what I mean? In other words, theology uh, for many uh, many people today is really a kind of a, a form of a, a political anthropology. Uh, salvation is, and salvation really uh, is helped by theology to the degree that theology is ordered to the works of liberation, because when we you know, share in the work of liberating the creation or liberating the oppressed, that's as close as we ever get to God, uh, God himself or himself or itself being shrouded in impenetrable mystery in his own right. Okay, now my point is that Garagu would not have shared that idea. Uh, Garagu, for Garagu and for the traditional Dominican position, Knowing the truth about God is not merely of academic interest. Knowing the truth about God is at least a proximate disposition to be saved by God. To be, to, you know, to know God is to be known by God. To know God in this sense in the world of faith is essentially to also be seized by the word of God and to be personally united to God. So the stakes are high. I mean, You've got a combative style of, of uh, argumentation joined to an urgent salvific mission, and you've got yourself a preacher and a teacher who's, uh, you know, ready, armed for bear. You know, he's ready to go. Okay, now, he's, at, he's in Paris. He's studying um, uh, at the Sorbonne. And... Uh, this is to not only did he have the theological work at the at the uh, the Salchoir, the Salchoir in Paris, uh, he also was educated at the Sorbonne and he followed courses of philosophy, the better for his intellectual training. Now, uh, one of the major there are two major sparring partners he'll have that will haunt him the rest of his life as he as he as he thinks through the uh, Christian faith. First person that he's going to contend with is Henri Bergson. Okay, uh, he is one of the he's, he is a, a metaphysician and a psychologist, and he's going to have an enormous influence on the intellectual life of France. And Gary Lagrange started out his philosophical career attending his lectures. Now you got to remember that at this age. Everybody's malleable, even somebody with as strong of a personality as Garigou had, is susceptible to the formation of a mind that is directing them, you know. So in other words, that, this is why you have mentors, this is why you have directors of theses. The intention or the hope is that they will actually get in your head and help form it. And, you know, Bergson could not be the kind of guy who would form uh, uh, Garigou's mind, but he would form it. And by way of reaction, if you know what I mean, uh, there was a, I won't say it's an allergic reaction, but there was a, a definitely a reaction to some of the central theses of Berg's, uh, 
of uh, Bergson, and that uh, reaction shaped the rest of his life. See, uh, Bergson is thought to be the man. Bergson was embraced by Catholics, which is an interesting thing because uh, Garrigou kind of took a, a, a reaction against him. But why did he? Why was he thought of as Catholic friendly? Well, because he fought against the idea of a deterministic universe, whether that was gripped in the grip of ironclad laws of necessity. He believed in a metaphysically justifiable account of freedom in the world. And of course, if you can have a metaphysically, philosophically rigorous defense of the existence of freedom in the world, you open the way for grace, you open the way for the action of God, you actually you open the way for human beings to be made in the image and likeness of God. So there's a lot of apologetic interest in some of the central Bergsonian intuitions. Uh, he wrote five major works. Uh, uh, one was uh, immediate uh, data or uh, of the of consciousness. Uh, also, he wrote something called the idea of place according to Aristotle. That was his secondary thesis. Another one was matter and memory. The one that followed that in 1907 was the creative evolution. And then he ended up with the two sources of morality and religion. Now he got, he was the head of the, he was the, the darling of the day. He was, he was someone who uh, was on everybody's lips. And uh, he, uh, uh, people, you know, the high society in Paris used to pay good money just to crowd the lecture halls when he would get up and talk. And, in France, they take intellectuals more seriously than we do in our country. Uh, they, they, an intellectual in France is sort of a famous person. They, they are respected. Uh, they have the high place of honor that we reserve for people like Madonna or you know Elton John or something like that. And it's, it's sad, but it's true. We don't really honor our intellectuals as we should. But anyway, uh, they honored him though. They honored, uh, they honored Bergson plenty. He won the Academy Française in 1914, and he got the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1927. So he, he's a famous guy, and he's dazzling everybody, and, and uh, Garrigou is listening to him, twisting his habit and thinking, something wrong with this guy, what is it? Uh, let me give you a, clear, uh, a quote of, that talks about what Bergson is all about. For Bergson, it says, reality was the vital thrust of the long vital through the varied levels and forms of being. Science and the positivism which had made science its model were not in touch with the vital processes of reality. Science, remember, the God in the 19th century's uh, French intellectual landscape, the God is scientism. Science can explain everything. See, Bergson is saying science just deals with cold abstractions, which don't really touch on, the, on real life. Music to the ears of people trying to escape scientific totalitarianism. For reality, he said, could not be grasped through the abstract concepts of the discursive intelligence. Reality was reached through the intuition of the metaphysician, not the proof or discursive reasoning of the metaphysician, the intuition of the metaphysician. See? Um, 
in the form of a knowledge, which is more like instinct than uh, it is like logic. So Bergson represents and articulated for many people an intuitionism. Reality is known not by discursive proof, but by immediate perception, immediate data of experience. That's more reliable than your scientific theories, all right? And he, so he's, he's got an intuitionism. We know because we know because we know because we have intuition. Also, this is tied to a process metaphysics, uh, something like Whitehead. Do you, you ever read, uh, study Whitehead, um, process metaphysics? Anyway, the idea, and we'll talk about this in a minute. The, um, uh, the basic intuition of process metaphysics is that becoming has priority over being. That it's that, you know, if you put it in popular language, uh, the journey is more important than the destination. Uh, you put it in terms of paradoxes about time with Heraclitus, the river, you know, you can never put your foot in the same river twice. Uh, the idea of intuition being that by the time you put it in the second, in the second time, it's not the same river, everything has changed. Now, there are problems with that, of course, but that's the basic intuition. Sometimes people's thought is driven by a basic, simple intuition that they elaborate endlessly, make it more complex endlessly, as they must, to answer objections. But the same intuition remains there. And for him, it was the process of reality. Reality happens as process not as a static state of being, okay? Now, Bergson um, is mostly interested here in, in epistemology. His goal is to show that the concepts of the discursive intellect, the ideas we work with, the proofs we fashion, have no real hold on being itself. According to Bergson, the discursive intellect operates by breaking up reality's undivided flow into static pieces, thereby transforming the land vital into static, divisible space. It, it, uh, it reifies reality. It, it, what is essentially processed is turned by the mind into a static essence, thereby robbing it of life, you see robbing it of its deepest reality. So in this, the fluidity of process is frozen into a plurality of static quantified things. Consequently, Bergson held that the human person was out of touch with the very life force permeating the universe if he failed to appreciate the priority of becoming over being. See? It's true that the human mind gives the impression that it is being that is most informant, but it is the dynamic process of becoming that underlies everything that is of value in human experience. Marriage, for example, is not a state, an essence, Marriage is a living process, a living relationship, you know, that changes over time, deepens, ripens, gets worse, breaks apart, grows again, dies, was reborn, so on and so forth, right? Um, 
you can contrast that with marriage as a stable contract between a man and a woman, which gives the, uh, each other exclusive rights over their body for purposes of mutual support and generation. How's that doing in capturing the reality of, a, of, a, of what a wedding, our marriage is, you see? So that's, that's really the intuition behind is giving priority to process over, over essence or essay. So Bergson's intuitionism is, uh, with its scathing critique of the work of the mind, was attractive to a younger generation tired of scientism. Uh, tired of a hostility to metaphysics because Bergson with process and with the unpredictability of the world uh, carved out a space for freedom and therefore carved out a space for the spiritual dimension of human existence. Now Bergson was not a Catholic, but Bergsonianism um, turned out to be a source of serious problems for Catholic theology, because this is the time where uh, the modernist crisis becomes a crisis in the Catholic Church. Now, in this regard, Bergson's disciple, Edward Leroy, raised the most questions in Garrigou's minds. Um, because this fellow, who was a disciple of Bergson, took Bergson to his logical conclusion and basically said um, that the mind, uh, because reality is always a process and never a static state, the mind can never really seize on it as it is in itself. The mind can never really know being as such. The mind can only know refractions of it, you see approximations of it. Uh, nothing, nothing is fully real at the moment that you know it. Uh, it's always changing and therefore our human conceptions of what is real are bound to be only perspectival. Only from my point of view as a subjective viewer of this is their validity. Uh, there's no objective uh, trans experiential truth available the only truth that's available is from the unique perspective of each exper agent experiencing, uh, even as he formulates the truth, the changing of that truth. Now, uh, Gary Gu uh, felt that to, uh, even though this was attractive to Catholics in, the, in France of uh, uh, early 20th century, Garrigou Lagrange felt that to embrace this, to swallow this Kool-Aid, was to basically doom any attempt to have an objective Catholic faith. He writes, Mr. Bergson, by his own admission, is today exactly on the other side of what he would call the principle of identity, which is he will recognize the natural metaphysic of human intelligence. He is led to say that the last word of modern philosophy consists in affirming that the fundamental reality is becoming. <laughs> well, that returns one to say, as Hegel recognized, that the intimate nature of things uh, is a realized contradiction. To deny the principle of identity as the fundamental law of the real is to affirm that contradiction is at the very heart of the real. 
The suppressed pure act, which is to bring us A is to A, suppressed divine transcendence is to put absurdity at the root of everything. Let's, uh, let's look at this at the implications for uh, Catholic dogma just for a minute before we come to the level of philosophy proper. For, um, for dogma, uh, take the idea that um, Take the, take the idea that, re, that becoming is more important than being, that being is derivative of becoming rather than the reverse. What does that do to your understanding of what Catholic doctrine is? Well, it historicizes it radically, don't you think? Uh, if, if doctrine is only interesting and true in the very process of becoming, then what's of interest to us in the Council of Nicaea or of Chalcedon is not the proclamation of the truth that they came to at that time. What's interesting is the struggle that led up to it and the historical results that flow from it. But no one period of uh, truth or no one doctrinal formulation will be able to rise above the moment of its articulation. You see? No one expression of truth will be able to live beyond the moment of its expression. This means that everything that the church teaches about, say, Jesus Christ, is subject to radical revision and indeed to uh, uh, what Aristotle would call substantial change. Uh, it may change to the point that it simply disappears. See. Uh, Garagu saw that, saw that problem. Where other people saw a celebration of freedom and vitality and an absence of determinism in the world and the flow of creativity, uh, Garagu saw uh, a relativization of the claims of truth and ultimately the destruction not only of Christian dogma uh, and its permanence in the church, but also the permanence of the church itself, right? And indeed the permanence of the principle of identity, which alone is able to confer sense and order and meaning in the world. So it isn't just Chalcedon and Ephesus that are threatened ultimately by Bergson and the creator of uh, Elan Vital. It's also that's uh, the capacity to believe that there really is a meaning and a truth in life in itself that is not simply the product of our temporary imaginations. It's basically rescuing the world from becoming an absurd place. That's what Garagu saw himself as doing. The first, uh, these first principles that Garagu worked with in, in defending uh, basic philosophy against Bergsonian Iwan or the Ivan Vital, uh, the first principles, he says, are self-evident or known through themselves, per se nota. They are primary truths immediately perceived by the intellect without demonstration. In this sense, they uh, are objects of simple intuition. The first principles, he says, are perceived in the idea of being, which is the formal object of our intellect. The four main ones are identity, uh, sufficient reason, causality, and finality. 
identity, sufficient reason, causality, and finality. Principle of identity, what is it? Well, intelligible extramental being, when apprehended, divides itself into two aspects, being given to the mind and being recognized by the mind. This is a conceptual difference, but really these, this, the, the formulations are identical. Um, Jacques Maritain explains it as each being is what it is. Uh, being is simply existing on the one hand and being with a particular essential determination on the other. Uh, Garrigou Lagrange explains it slightly differently. He says every being is of a determinate nature and zest res. In other words, we're concerned with two different transcendentals, but both explanations are only slightly different. Something is what it is. Uh, this principle of identity can be formulated in a logical form called the principle of non-contradiction. It is possible, I should say it is impossible, for the same thing to be affirmed and denied at the same time. It's impossible for the same thing to be affirmed and denied at the same time. Now, this is uh, this principle of identity is not only a subjective law of thought. It is an objective law of reality. And this is important to see about Garrett. These basic principles, the first principles of being and non-contradiction and so on, they are not simply... Uh, ways the human mind must necessarily work if it's to work at all. These, this is the way reality has to be if it's to be intelligible at all. Okay. In other words, it's not what we're talking about here are not simply rules of logic. We're talking about determinations of being. And these actually these uh, we want to call them law of first principles per se no to principles. You'd have to say that they, in this sense, are not only binding on human thought uh, or on or binding on realities, you know, themselves. They are also, if you want to put it this way, binding on God. Not even God can create something absurd. Uh, a round square is not only unthinkable. It's also unrealizable. Not even God can create something absurd. He can make an exception to a physical law, in which case you have yourself a miracle. But uh, he can't violate or break a metaphysical law. Anyway, that's the principle of identity. And uh, he, he see, what he wants to say is that Bergson's Elan Vital the priority of becoming over being basically undermines or makes impossible to assert the principle of identity because no sooner do you assert something than it is not what it was. See, again, contradiction at the heart of reality. We live in an insane universe. Okay, so anyway, the principle of sufficient reason. Um, this principle is basically saying that for anything that is, there has to be a sufficient ground for its existing. Um, everything that exists has a sufficient reason for its existence. Now, 
we can't directly demonstrate this because it's a self-evident intuition, as are all first principles. But you can reduce it to a reductio ad absurdum, which will attach it to the principle of identity. See, the sufficient reason is that in virtue of which something is or that without which something is not. To admit an existing being without a sufficient reason is to admit a being which exists and which does not exist at the same time, since it lacks that without which it is not. A chair without a builder is absurd because this chair is at the same time exists and does not exist. It does not have that without which it cannot exist. So uh, they can, you can enunciate it this way. Everything must have a reason of being, either in itself or in something else. If a property doesn't necessarily flow from, flow from the essence of a thing, then this property must have its explanation somewhere else. The union of things which are in themselves different has to have an extrinsic reason. And an uncaused contingent being is absurd. So uh, uh, it is at the same time a thing which exists and yet does not exist by itself. Thirdly, there's the principle of efficient causality. Um, this is the immediate basis for the proofs for the existence of God. Um, the efficient cause is the sufficient reason as a realizing principle that by which a thing is accomplished. All right. Um, once again, a thing without a cause, an effect without a cause is an absurdity because it's a contradiction. Uh, it is a being that at the same time would not be dependent on oneself and dependent on oneself. So it's clear that we are compelled to identify being not from itself and being from another and to acknowledge the absolute necessity of this principle of causality. It's universal and it's valid throughout the created world. Okay, finally, there is the principle of finality. This is derived from the principle of sufficient reason also. The end, that is the reason why an action takes place is a definite perfection which directly refers to the agent as its own good and for the sake of which it acts. Now, an agent produces a determinate effect, which rather than any other, and this means that it is preordained towards that specific effect. Otherwise, a rose, I mean, a bud uh, would not give rise to a rose any more likely than a rabbit. Um, the fact that uh, effects regularly produce the causes regularly produce effects that are predictable and not random means that there is an end that is fulfilled by the agent acting towards an end. So everything that acts then acts for a can end. All right, now that this is all uh, pretty esoteric stuff, but it's what Garrigou worked out in his book on reality. It's basically basic Thomas metaphysics. And in it, just to summarize what I was trying to get at, he kind of equates laws of thought with laws of being. And his basic, and he says that 
because he wants to say that the proper object of the mind is being itself. And the relationship between mind and being, uh, the adequate relationship between mind and being, he will call truth, okay? Why go to all this trouble? Um, because what he wants to do is to defend, when he wants to say that the, the being is the object of the mind, what he wants to say is that um, truth is natural to the human intelligence, that the truth of things is available to the human mind, that we can know things uh, are and we can know what they are, right? And that, but to know that, to affirm that, to be able to say that, you have to posit the priority of being over becoming, and you have to posit that the natural object of the mind is being itself. When those things are in place, you can mount proofs or arguments for the existence of God, right? Uh, without this, you can't. Kant saw that. Um, his basic criticism of the proofs for the existence of God were that, it, that when we argue from effects to a cause, uh, we're forgetting that cause is an a priori category of the human mind. Causation isn't something we discover in the world. Causation is a necessary lens through which we look at the world. See? Therefore, you can't use causation to demonstrate the existence of God. That's beyond the range of reason. Many people, in, in fact, modernity might be fairly characterized as, in part anyway, as the acceptance of that way of looking at things. Garagou spent his whole life in philosophical battle against the idea that the human mind simply projects its preferred reality onto the world. He wanted to live and die for the truth of the mind is receptive of being itself and can know it. He thought the possibility of having a sane world uh, depended on that conviction and on that truth. He also had uh, a bone to pick with another philosopher, Maurice Blondel, and he's remembered for his philosophy of action that was debuted in 1893, his work, Action, okay? His fundamental claim is that philosophy must take its impetus from action rather than pure thought. One must turn from abstract thought to actual experience in all its fullness and richness. Uh, for Blondel, the fatal error of the intellectualists was their failure to see that unless abstract concepts and ideas were restored to their proper context in the dynamic action of the concrete subject and integrated in the light of it, Reason could not find the truth. So because of this, Blondel held that the concrete will, striving past conceptual objects uh, and not the conceptual intellect, was the primary faculty of truth and being. So his definition of truth was not the adequation of mind and being, but the adequation of mind to truth of the truth of life which is a very different formulation. So, so Blondel is not really an intellectualist here. He's again like a vitalist, and he will want to say that truth isn't found so much in the exercises of the abstractive intellect. Truth is found in deed. Truth is found in action itself. 
where the human historical subject realizes himself in authentic action. See, that's what that Blondel was after. Now, I want to talk about uh, a pupil of Gary Goose, who was important um, as a foil. Um, and that is the work of uh, Marie-Dominique Chenu, who was a student of Garigou's at the Angelicum, and his best and favorite pupil, and also the one who turned most decisively against him. Uh, have you ever read Chenu? Do you know any of his work? Uh, he wrote the famous book, Toward Understanding St. Thomas. It's a masterpiece, okay? Anyway, Chenu and Garrigou approached theology from two very different perspectives. Uh, Garrigou can fairly be described as ahistorical. His interest in history was tangent. Chenu basically was a, a wonderful medieval historian. He, he could put St. Thomas in an illuminated historical context, and his study of the text of St. Thomas in the context of his uh, contemporaries his predecessors and his successors was able to really situate what was distinctive about the teaching of St. Thomas and help people to penetrate it more profoundly. Okay, so, uh, the, and as I say, you don't know something unless you know its causes. You don't know the American Revolution unless you know what produced it. You don't know what, uh, uh, you don't understand what caused a crash unless you uh, you don't know understand the crash unless you understand gravity, unless you understand the things that caused it. Uh, the same thing is true in the realm of ideas. Ideas kind of have causes, proximate causes, and previous ideas, previous personality, previous historical circumstances, right? So you don't really understand an idea unless you understand the total historical context which produced it. But again, see, that, uh, that has a historicist uh, lends itself easily to his sources readings because what was uncovered by one generation may be supplemented, added to, or even contradicted by something later. Okay. That's that's the opportunity and that's the risk. But Chenu as a historian uh, was, I, I mean, as a theologian, basically was attracted to progress, to the idea that, that, that dogma doctrines can change and develop and ought to with the times, you know. Um, and he was a big influence in the Second Vatican Council and its call to read the signs of the times. Chenu was alert out there, seeing how the uh, Christendom was being had been shattered, uh, and uh, it was uh, we were entering into a new era. The Church one we had to uh, you know appreciate the unique dangers and opportunities of. So. So Chenu is uh, his, uh, basically uh, a medieval historian who also becomes a bit of a historicist in theology uh, and very much an influence behind the Second Vatican Council. All right. He and uh, Gary Gutschlach and then uh, basically got a whole school of theology, which was called Moussachwar, uh, Nicole de Theologie. Uh, Chenu put this out as a broadside, which was basically an attack on static Baroque scholasticism, which is basically an attack on Garrigou himself. And so the Garrigou turns around and he says he didn't get it condemned, which is, uh, I think, true. But he also didn't fight the condemnation. So his own pupil was put on an index of forbidden works. 
Um, anyway, so there's so uh, you see these the struggle of the love and the ambivalence between Garigou and, and M.D. Chenu. He also had a protege in Jacques Maritain. Uh, now th they they started out as best buds and then they became estranged, held together in charity but in deep disagreement. They were in agreement on on basic meta the idea of the indispensable role that metaphysics and philosophy play in theology. They didn't fight about that. They all agreed with that. What they disagreed about was basically political judgments. Okay. You have to understand that France and uh, Catholicism in France had been under siege by the Republic. You know, uh, education had been taken out of Catholic teachers' hands. Um, uh, kids were being taught only in secular schools. The convents were being shut down. Uh, religious orders of men were being sent out of the country. There was a basically anti-Christian, anti-Catholic uh, Republican uh, running things. And, of course, somebody with the fiery temperament of a Garigou would not take that very well, and he didn't. Uh, he, and so when during the Second World War, when France was divided into the Vichy regime, and, and you know, occupied France and unoccupied France, and the Vichy regime was governed by a guy named General, I think Patan was his name. He was a fascist. And he was allied with the Nazis, but he gave the church institutional protection and privilege. All the privileges that the church used to have uh, in its public morality and in everything else uh, were lost in the Republic, but then restored by Catan. So uh, Garrigou basically thought that Catan was great. And he never really, uh, because of the uh, associations with the Egalite, Paternite, and so forth, of the French Revolution, which led to the cutting off of heads of many a priest and not of many a Catholic. Uh, because of those historical associations, Garrigou was never really sold on democracy. And he was, was sold on General Patan because of the favor he showed to the church. So he collaborated and wanted, he was all in favor of the Vichy regime. Jacques Maritain, though, a layman, uh, saw more clearly the evil of fascism and the dangers of a corrupted Catholic alliance with the fascist regime. So he basically took the side of General de Gaulle and the pre-French movement during the Second World War. This caused a deep split in the friendship between Garrigou and, and Jacques, and they never really reconciled in life. Uh, although at the very end, Jacques wrote a, you know, a moving peon to his old friend and said, I'm I pray to him now as to a saint in heaven, and we maybe maybe we reconciled there. So you know, there wasn't malice, but there was you know, it's hard to stay friends with someone when something so deeply so deep divides you. So there was that friendship with uh, Jacques Baritain, which went on the rocks over over a judge over political judgments. Um, and there's no question that Garrigou was a man of the right and not a man of the left, and temperamentally, you know, and I think temperament has a lot to do with these things. Temperamentally, Jacques Maritain was always more of a man on the left, you know. And he did write The Peasant of the Garonne and, and uh, some uh, tracks towards the end of his life, which really expressed strong reservations about the Second Vatican Council. But I think in his heart, uh, Jacques Maritain was more to the left than to the right. He certainly had great sympathy for artists, poets, 
free thinkers, people like Julian Green or Andre Gide, people like that. The, the French intelligentsia uh, would gather in their salon and discourse about being and John of the Cross and and, uh, and absurdist theater and you know all the rest of it. Well, there weren't many of those kind of people uh, coming around Garibaldi's salon. So he's definitely a man of the right. Now, I want to talk something about, uh, do a little bit of talking about Garrigou and uh, his influence on spiritual theology. We've talked about him as a philosopher. He's, believe it or not, Garrigou is, has been cited as one of the major influences uh, of the Second Vatican Council. Isn't that odd? He's kind of pictured always as an intransigent enemy of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, or the ideas behind it. Uh, he didn't have much chance to really oppose it because he died in 1964, just as the council was getting underway. But nonetheless, he is responsible for some of those seminal ideas of the Second Vatican Council, namely the um, universal call to holiness of the church. There was a popular idea that uh, the councils, the Beatitudes, were what we would call councils, uh, that is to say, optional in the life of the Christian. Uh, basically, the idea was that there's a true two-track uh, system for getting to heaven. There is the elite fast track, which people like myself take it the slow track is in a spirit of perfection. Lay people can get by with the, the uh, Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, so real holiness is basically for the religious professionals. But that's the caricature, of course, but a lot of people believe something very much like that. Now, what Garagou did, he wrote a little book called, what did he call it? Uh, Christian Perfection and Contemplation. It was later translated into a book called The Three Ages of the Interior Life, which was, uh, uh, which is a synthesis between Christian perfection and contemplation and the love of God and the cross of Jesus. Those two books came together to form the three ages of the interior life. Anyway, the basic thesis of the book is that perfection, the life of infused contemplation, is for everybody. Perfection is not reserved to an elite few. Perfection is, in principle, open to everyone. Now, so he starts talking about, and he went into this by synthesizing and fusing um, the works of St. John of the Cross and St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, I myself would tend to think that such a project is bound to uh, have real problems. And John of the Cross is basically a poet, right? Uh, he's considered by, by secular people who have no religious interests in the question, he's considered to be one of the, the, the Spanish language's greatest living, greatest poets. Yeah. It's interesting about him, um, an unanswered question. All we have of his are his finished masterpieces. But we don't have any imperfect beginning John of the Cross poems. You know what I mean? Hardly anybody starts out as a genius, or hardly anybody starts out carving masterpieces. Most people have a have a false start or two, you know. Uh, 
and you'd like, think you could find John of the Cross with scratched out no pieces of paper crumbled up and thrown into the wastebasket and stuff like that. You'd want him to be more of a tortured artist, but uh, he wasn't apparently, uh, or at least they don't have any evidence of of uh, early imperfect works. What we have of him are his masterpieces. But anyway, a poetic, it just seems to me that a poetic sensibility, somebody who's that tuned into sensible imagery uh, is not attuned to the necessity of abstract metaphysics. But uh, but he did write system, quasi-systematic works in the Ascent of Mount Carmel and the um, Living Flame of Love. He starts out with beautiful poems, and then he turns them into scholastic uh, analyses, you know. That's interesting. Anyway, the point is that um, you have a poet coming together, describing concrete spiritual experience in a systematic way. Now, that's the work of St. John of the Cross, and it's a work of nada, you know, radical detachment. Uh, unless you go by the way in which which is not, you will not, never arrive at that which is not. You, by, the way up is the way down. Only by the experience of intense suffering and mortification can you attain to salvation. You know, uh, the whole... Uh, presentation of John's mystical theology requires an absolute detachment and uh, and mortification of the senses and a night not only for the senses but that of the intellect as well. Now he wants to marry that, the Garagu I'm talking about, wants to marry that to St. To Saint Thomas Aquinas who is I think famously more optimistic about human beings and their uh, the innate goodness of human nature and how grace perfects nature, it doesn't require its annihilation, you know, and so forth. Now, I think these are two odd fellows to match up as theological, but Garagu's whole project is to make them symbiotic twins, you know, uh, that they, they basically are all saying the same thing. Now, you can find some evidence for that, John of the Cross was a Thomist, after all, and in many ways, although his account of memory is different. Um, but John of the Cross certainly took over large parts of, of Thomistic anthropology and uh, baptized it in mystical graces. But I think that, um, and so, but I do think that, I, that there is a profound difference in temperament between them. Aquinas is more serene about the inbuilt goodness of human nature and our capacities for truth, and the uh, the idea that goodness is actually attractive to us, that it's not simply, a, the walk, walk purification is not simply a matter of detaching from uh, sensible things, it's also a matter of joy in the good. And, uh, so I think that you now what's in St. Thomas that is in John of the Cross as well and is in the whole tradition is the progress uh, the typical stages of progression in spiritual life. You have the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. John of the Cross takes up that tradition as did Aquinas before him, and the basic outlines of spiritual progress is, is the same. In the purgative way, you are working against your sins cleansing yourself of your imperfections. 
and the illuminative way, the grace of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit move you more directly, uh, but there's still imperfections and work to do. And then in the unitive way, we basically disappear into God and are perfectly disposed with his will. With St. Thomas, the accent is on yielding to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For St. Thomas in the Dominican school, sanctity is not the interior castle or the dark night of the soul or the dark night of the senses. Sanctity is really a total yielding to the gifts or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who carries you. And so there's less interest in stages or castles or maps and more a description of, of simply a yielding to God uh, by virtue of the gifts of the Spirit. And Saint, for St. Thomas, that is the mystical life. Okay, uh, I've given you kind of a, a brief summary of uh, some of the main issues of Garrigou. I'm not really an expert in Garrigou, but this is what I was, you know, the, the topic of interest. So this is uh, some of the main lines of his thought and influence. I would say in conclusion, there are some battles that he fought that seem to me to be badly need to be refought. The basic capacity, the object of the mind is being, that we can, uh, that there is a, uh, uh, the mind, the object of the mind is being itself, that we can know truth, that there is a way to knowledge of God. These are all uh, very contested themes today, but if we could make some headway on them, that would be great. Also, the idea that spirituality and spiritual life is has a structure to it, it has spontaneity in it, but it also has a recognizable map, a recognizable journey with the goal. Uh, also, uh, has, in other words, some uh, spirituality with backbone and uh, rooted in Christian dogma also seems to me to be a project that is uh, eminently worth doing and worth recovering throughout our time.